Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Kaita fakaronga mai koe ki to tato elhuri hei hotaka i paniki a papatuanuku tangaroa mei rangi nui. You're with Our Changing World on RNZ National, and now humpback whales. Rochelle Constantine from the University of Auckland has been on the tail of Oceania's threatened humpback whales for many years. She's been wondering why their numbers are growing so slowly compared to the humpbacks of East Australia and whether it's to do with their undiscovered Antarctic feeding grounds. She's also been hearing reports of lots of humpback whales visiting Raoul Island and the Kermadex in spring on their southwards migration. She wondered if they were travelling from the Oceania breeding grounds around New Caledonia, Nui, Tonga and the Cook Islands. Rochelle tells Alison how, in October last year, she took a team to Raoul Island to attach satellite tags to humpback whales. Armed with tagging and biopsy guns and cameras, the team used two small boats to find and approach the socialising whales. So when did you first hear about humpback whales at the Kermadex? It was in about 2008. Karen Baird was working there for DOC at the time and she noticed all these whales going past around sort of around September, October. And when she came back from the field, she said, oh, we did a little survey and there's a lot of whales passing by there. So it sort of showed us um, in subsequent years exactly how many. We had up to 156 humpback whales in a single four-hour period from around Raoul Island. And at that point, we knew it was a pretty special place. So September, October, what's happening with humpback whales at that time of year? So they're heading south. They've had a, a winter of breeding, so they spend probably about two, three months on the breeding grounds in the, in the sort of tropical regions between New Caledonia and French Polynesia for our area. And uh, they're heading south. So they're, they're about 1,600 kilometres or so north of Raoul Island, and they're well on their way travelling um, at that time. So you're quite familiar with those individual whales up in Oceania. Did you have any idea where they go to? No, we didn't. We'd been to Antarctica back in 2010 looking for them. We went to sort of that Ross Sea region, sort of to the south southeast of New Zealand and then across to the um, southwest, sort of under Australia, that, that broader part of Antarctica. And we had a really good search around and we found a, a, quite a lot of humpbacks, um, mainly around the Bellany Islands region, which is pretty much due south of New Zealand. And But they were almost all Australian, East Australian humpback whales, which was a little bit frustrating, quite surprising um, but but a bit frustrating because I was more interested in the Oceania humpbacks because they're not recovering that well you know post whaling the East Australian whales are doing very well they're up in the mid 20,000s of whales and they're they're off like a rocket Um, but the Oceania whales in contrast they're recovering but really slowly so we're kind of curious as to why that might be and I was hoping we'd find them in Antarctica because we think maybe the feeding grounds you know partly explains um, their slow recovery after being there in 2010 it was like right we have to look further to the east and historically during the whaling era they they used to shoot these metal rods they were called discovery tags into whales very much like a modern fishing tag you know with a little code on the side and then but back then they had to kill the whale to retrieve the tag and so when they were rendered down in the the pots the blubber was rendered down they would find these metal tags in the bottom of the pot so they had an idea of where some of the whales they were killing came from or went to and and we had some 
some notions of uh, from some genetic and, and um, photo identification matches of Oceania whales being found you know, over towards the Antarctic Peninsula and, and the sort of the Bellingshausen and Amundsen Sea region, which is an area of Antarctica I describe as sort of here be dragons on the chart because virtually no one goes there. There's, there's no real established Antarctic bases there. So this part of Antarctica is very remote and really poorly understood. So we had some suspicions that that was where our Oceania whales were going. But to go there on a ship was going to cost me around $6 million and no one was going to give me that kind of money. So I had to think. And so I you know, was thinking back to the conversations with, with Karen Baird and, and the whales at Rahl and I thought, well, if we go to Rahl and we deploy satellite tags, we get an idea of where they were going. And because we have such a good idea, uh, you know, a lot of data on the humpback whales from Oceania, we know them through genetics and through photo ID. But, well, we can collect genetic samples, a little tissue biopsy, and take some photos of their flukes, and perhaps we'll work out where they're coming from and where they're going to. Yeah. So you managed to put together an expedition that went up to the Kumedex last October. So we were on two small boats, the tagging boat. Their purpose was to deploy as many of our, we had 29 satellite tags, uh, to deploy as many as possible. And they, they deployed 24 tags really well into um, individual whales. We got a matching biopsy sample from those whales at the same time. So we knew their genetics and what sex they were and how they're related to other whales and where they're coming from. And we can also use a little bit of that tissue for uh, to determine diet. So we've, we're using this um, stable isotope analysis, which is basically the mantra, you are what you eat, is what that is. So we can work out what they're feeding, where in the food chain, uh, and preliminary um, analysis shows us they're eating krill, which is good. No, no big surprises there, but good to know. But also we can take those data and um, use this new technique called isoscape modelling. And so it's kind of, if you, you think of the ocean is having these different chemical makeups, these different kinds of chemistries throughout all of the oceans in the world and that chemistry is retained in the food and so when an animal like a whale eats food like krill, that chemistry of the ocean that's in the krill is now in the whale and so we're able to sort of assign perhaps where that whale was feeding using the, the ocean chemistry signatures. It's new but it's potentially exciting. So we took biopsy samples, we managed to sample 78 individual whales. We know four of them from the Pacific region. So and we did had... you work that out while you were there? No, we worked out from the photo IDs, which are a little more immediate. You take the photos and now with digital cameras you can match them. So when we were in the field, we actually matched a whale to New Caledonia and we matched one to Nui as well, which was very exciting because there's only about 40 whales in the Nui catalogue. So we knew already before we even left Rahl that we had whales not just coming from one place, you know, past Rahl. We had them from New Caledonia and from Nui. And subsequent to that, we've now matched whales to American Samoa, to the Cook Islands, to Tonga, um, using either genetics or photo ID. So we have a number of the whales that we've actually known from as far back as 1999. In fact, the 1999 whale from New Caledonia, she was a calf in New Caledonia when she was sampled. And then we saw her in 2015 at Rahl with her own calf. So it was it's kind of nice. It was this, this fun thing for, for Claire Garrig, who studied them in New Caledonia for many years. So between the genetics, the photo ID and the satellite tagging, we've been able to weave quite a neat picture of where these whales are coming from. So from New Caledonia to the Cook Islands is around about 3,600 kilometres you know, distance. So whales are coming from all of these places which are around about 
you know, 1,500 to 1,800 kilometres away from Raoul. These whales have left, they're swimming, swimming, they come past Raoul, then proceeded to go through the chain of islands, so through Cheeseman and Macaulay and, and Esperance Rock. And then once they sort of hit, started heading south of the Kermadec group, they then spread out and um, some whales travelled in a, in a sort of southeasterly direction they were only a few few hundred kilometres shy of the West Antarctic Peninsula. That's how far they went. In fact, our longest whale from Raoul to swimming to where it stopped in Antarctica was about 7,000 kilometres in a straight line, and it took it nine weeks to swim 7,000 kilometres. This whale probably had about 1,500 kilometres before that coming from the breeding ground, so it's about 8,500 kilometres one way. Wow, and that was a female with a calf? Uh, no, Do you know? it's, it's an, a male. It's a an male. adult male, yes. And But there were females over that side and mothers with calves. So they, they were spread basically from that, you know, close to the um, West Antarctic Peninsula through the Bellingshausen and Amundsen Sea regions and then all the way to the west of the Ross Sea region. So that sort of in a... In a sort of line from point to point meant the whales were spread over about three and a half thousand kilometres. So they went from the spread of, you know, 3,600 kilometres and the, from the breeding grounds, funneled down through these islands and then spread out across the sort of about three and a half thousand kilometre um, breadth of, of the Southern Ocean. It's magnificent. So the Kermadecs are a real meeting place for them. We knew that they were meeting there from the land-based observations, but I didn't quite anticipate how many different places they would be coming from, you know, to that location. And one of the things that sort of triggered us thinking a bit was we recorded a lot of song. that's been done by um, Alan Garland and Mike Node, colleagues of mine from the University of Queensland, showed um, that, that the song is culturally inherited and it's passed across the Pacific Islands. So the song that we'll hear in New Caledonia this year, next year we'll hear in Tonga and the year after we'll hear in the Cook Islands. So it's sort of, the song sort of moves across. And we've often wondered where are these points of mixing? And when we were at Raoul, this, the whales were always singing. There was just this constant song. But it was all kinds of song. So when you work in a breeding ground, you kind of get used to a certain song that's in at the time and certain tones and themes that you hear again and again. But at, at Raoul, we'd hear something and then... You know, a few days later we'd hear something entirely different and then we'd go round the corner and there'd be something entirely different. So it was clear that m maybe Raoul is one of those places where, where sort of this cultural handover of song information may occur. And because they're coming from all these different grounds, it's, it's highly possible. Most of the whales only stayed for a day or two, if that. There were some that stayed up to 10 days, and we had one tagged whale that stayed for 21 days just around Raoul, which was unusual. Uh, but most of them, it's only a day or two or so, and then they move on. So they're not staying there for a very long time. They definitely come and socialise. They breach and they sort of race around a little. But they're definitely on their way south. 
at that point, they've been fasting for probably about six or seven months. So they're they're getting pretty pretty hungry, I'd say, by that time. And and there's no reason for them to hang around Raoul really for any great period of time. So they just tend to keep going south. So they'll just be finishing their Antarctic summer. Mm. They'll be full of fat and energy again to start their swim north. Any of your tags still transmitting? So, yeah, of all the tags we deployed, we had um, 19 of them that lasted for for longer than three weeks, which is pretty good. And we have one tag still transmitting, and so that's now six and a half months. It's the the last one going, and it's still over by the West Antarctic Peninsula region, which is is very exciting. One of the things we were interested in knowing is do they sort of come down, have a feed, and then move east or west by a few hundred kilometres and feed somewhere else and keep moving around? But no, they, they definitely have this sort of strong southeast easterly pattern and then they pretty much stay in the place where they fed so the Amundsen sea whales are still in the Amundsen sea and the Bellingshausen still in the Bellingshausen. We were hoping that we would get some tracks of whales starting to head north again to see if they came back up the way they went down. So you still don't know where they make the return journey? No, no, they don't. And that, that's where I'm going to have to go back to my finding $6 million to go to Antarctica maybe to find them. Or get someone to invent a satellite tag with a longer battery life. Well, uh, it's not the battery life that's a problem. So the main limiting factor for tag transmissions is um, the whales squeeze them out. So the tag is exposed externally. It's got a little antenna exposed. And it's a foreign object in the whale's skin. And very much like if we have a foreign object in our skin, we squeeze it out, and that's exactly what they do. But nonetheless, this trip of yours to Raoul into the Kumadex has really filled in a big bit of the picture of what the Oceania whales do. Absolutely. We we had no idea, you know, where they went, what they were feeding on, where they came from. One of the challenges now is is to take these data and analyse them in a, in a meaningful way with regards to what does it mean for those whales that are travelling, you know, almost 9,000 kilometres one way. Um, versus the whales that swam reasonably straight down from Raoul down to the Ross Sea region. They're, they're at least a few thousand kilometres shorter, their migration distance. Uh, and then when you compare that to the East Australian whales that come from sort of off, off Gladstone Way, and they swim down, many of them stop at South Australia off Eden there and feed before they head straight south. They have a very short migration path, so that distance between East Australia and their Antarctic feeding grounds is relatively short compared to these whales we had from Oceania that were heading all the way over to the Antarctic Peninsula. So, you know, what drives whales to actually undertake this, you know, migration that's not the fastest point from A to B? And we think they learn their migration from their mum. And so maybe it's just so ingrained in them that that's where you go, that they continue to do that. So we're interested in energetically, does that have a cost to the whales? Because that might be what's explaining their lower rate of recovery, that they simply use a lot more energy migrating to and from, and therefore there's less energy to carve or raise viable calves. So that's the next part of our puzzle. That was Rochelle Constantine from the University of Auckland. And you can hear a longer version of Rochelle's interview and see the remarkable tracks of whales swimming from the Kermadex to Antarctica at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld.